you brood of vipers. I don't know whether anyone gave John the Baptist some advice on how to make friends and influence people, but um, if they did, he obviously uh, didn't take it on board. I think if uh, one of you came up to me and said, look, Neil, I've been thinking and praying about it a lot and I'd like to be baptised. And if I were to say, you viper, I don't think we'd have too many baptisms in this, in this church, would we? And before we try and understand why John the Baptist um, did respond in that way, just to remind uh, us, and for the benefit of visitors here this morning, we are in the middle of a sermon series, looking at how we as a church can demonstrate grace in the community. And we so far uh, looked at mercy and influence, and today we're looking at life discipleship, and we finish next week with evangelism. We're considering how living out the Christian faith encompasses every aspect of our lives. So what does this passage from Luke have to, be, have to do with life discipleship? Because to be a follower or disciple of Jesus is to live a transformed, a changed life in the world. It's to take seriously that command to repent. And this passage gives some specific examples of what repentance looks like in in individual lives. So let's get back to the brood of vipers then. Who is this John the Baptist? Interestingly enough, I had a boss in Brazil called João Batista. For you Portuguese speakers, that means John the Baptist. Um, Don't think he wore clothing made of camel hair or ate locusts, but he um, did uh, wear a belt and eat honey. But John the Baptist is the one who Isaiah, many hundreds of years before, prophesied that there would be one who would come, who would prepare for the arrival of God's Messiah. And he would prepare by getting hearts open to respond to him. If you flick back a page, he, um, a couple of pages, he was the son born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, back in chapter 1, in verse 17, it says there, even before he was born, that an angel told his father that John, his son, would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth, and that many of the people of Israel he would bring back to the Lord their God. And what that prophecy tells us is that many of the people of Israel must have strayed away from God to be brought back to him. They probably still followed the rituals of the religion, so ingrained were they, but um, probably their hearts were far from God. And they may well have been aware of their spiritual state, because when they heard about this, this Elijah figure going into all the country around Jordan and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, they all rushed out to find out what was going on. In the book of Mark it says they came from Jerusalem, from the city, and they came from all the Judean countryside. It's not one of those disaster films when there's a coming tidal wave or an an alien invasion and everybody floods out of the city. Maybe there was an approaching flu pandemic and they thought John the Baptist was the only one with the vaccine. What was their panic? Why were they flooding out? Why were they so keen to be baptised? Well, of course, the the flip side to 
the coming Messiah, the coming Saviour, was, of course, a coming judgment from which they needed to be saved. They needed salvation for their souls and they thought that being baptised, that washing of their sins could achieve this for them. So why this harsh language from John, comparing them with snakes that flee a fire? Well, probably to draw their attention to the serious situation in which they were in. What he was saying is they were in danger of putting their trust in two things which, at the end of the day, will not help them. Two examples of false assurance. The crowds came out wanting to be baptised by John, but came out for the wrong reason. It seems like they thought that just by being baptised, like being circumcised, would, would save them. It was almost a, a superstitious belief. And there are so many people today who have a, a superstitious belief in the rituals of religion without it having changed their heart. There are those who get their children baptised thinking just if something happens to them they will be okay because they've got that mark on them. There are footballers who do the sign of the cross every time they go out onto the football field which for some may have significance but for others it may actually be no different from other footballing superstitions such as I'm told wearing your underwear inside out being the last to come out onto the pitch or using the same urinal before you come out. Superstitions. The act of baptism as a superstition will not save you. True Christianity is not about ritual. It's about a heart attitude to God. After um, Jesus had ascended to heaven, as we've been celebrating today, Ascension Day, Peter preached to the Jews on the the day of of Pentecost. And uh, they asked him, brothers, what shall we do? And he replied, repent and be baptised. In other words, turn from your sin, ask for forgiveness, and then demonstrate that that forgiveness. Demonstrate that that special blessing, receive that special blessing through the act of baptism. The heart change comes first. That is what he was saying, the act of baptism won't change you. The other thing that won't save you, John says here, is your family heritage. The Jews had a tremendously privileged cultural ancestry. They belonged to the people who were chosen by God for special blessing. But John says here quite clearly to them, don't think that that will be enough if you personally haven't turned to God. Look at verse 8 there in chapter 3. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. He's saying God can quite easily create a batch of people and he will in any case bring into his kingdom those who are not of the elect nation of of Israel. In other words, the fact that you are descended from Abraham, the fact that you are part of the Jewish people doesn't guarantee you a relationship with God. A bit like um, David Beckham's son, Brooklyn, going for a trial with Man United. And they're saying, well, you know who my dad is, don't you? You know, give me a multi-million pound contract as well. Thank you very much. Now, he is tremendously privileged. He has the possibility of inheriting some of his father's skills on the football pitch. He has opportunities that many kids wouldn't have. But at the end of the day, he's not his dad. And that will be not, not be enough 
to guarantee him a footballing career. We, too, can grow up in a Christian country, in a Christian family. We can go to a Christian church, live a, an apparently Christian with a small c moral life. But none of that means anything if we not, have not personally repented of our sin and asked Jesus for the forgiveness that he offers. Well, so if the act of baptism and our family heritage won't save us, then what can? Well, it's a certain type of heart that is needed, one which responds to the good news. And that is why John calls for repentance. In verse 8, John says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, because true repentance involves the whole of our lives. Acceptance and forgiveness goes hand in hand with a change in our hearts towards God. If you're a parent here, I don't know whether you've heard yourself saying the words to your children, it's no good saying you're sorry and then going off and doing it again. Or maybe it just happens in our house. If you're truly sorry, you'll want to change, to not do these things again. And repentance is about life change, life transformation, giving all of our lives to Jesus, glorifying God in all that we do. Because although that forgiveness is a free gift for us from God, for God it had a huge cost for it, didn't it? For God it cost him the life of his son. And so if we take that free gift and show no gratitude for it in the way we live our lives, that is an insult to God, the cost of that sacrifice. People come to faith in different ways. For some, it's a a dramatic conversion, a sudden realisation of why Jesus died for us. For others, it's a gradual process, which may be a gradual understanding of the truth. It may be a gradual turning over of every aspect of our lives to, to God. You know, we recognise the immediate things that need to change and which aren't good for us anyway. But there are still areas of our lives which we don't really want to, to hand over to God. And so it may be a coming close to God and then just a drawing back. Again, a coming close but a, a drawing back again. Almost a sort of shadow boxing. And speaking from experience, that is the worst a most frustrating place to be. Ken Costa was um, an investment banker for over 30 years, vice chairman at uh, UBS Investment Bank. He wrote this book, God at Work. And he's another person who went through that, that same experience. And he says in this, book, in this book, and I quote, he says, many people accept just enough of Christianity to be miserable. Many people accept just enough of Christianity to be miserable. He describes how his faith came to life after internal struggle, after a negotiation with God about how much of his life he could hand over to him. He was saying, well, how about a sort of 50-50 partnership here? And it was only later that he realised the arrogance of trying to negotiate with God became clear for him, as it does for for every Christian, that true freedom can only be found as we give ourselves fully, as we surrender ourselves fully to the love of God. Well, what does that change look like then in real life to me if I do that, if I give my whole life 
to God? What is life discipleship? Well, interestingly enough, that's the same question asked by three different groups of people in this passage. In verse 10, the crowd asked, what should we do then? What should we do then if we need to show the fruit of our repentance? John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And this is like a, a general application for all Christians. We are called to show love to one another. And part of that is in practical acts of love and, and generosity. You know, where we have something that others don't have, being prepared to share that. That could mean food and clothes. That could mean many other things, offering lifts. It could mean offering company to those who are lonely. It could mean offering advice to those who struggle with, with technical things, financial things. The list is endless. And there's a tremendous amount of generosity that goes on in this church. And much of that is, is completely unnoticed. And all credit to those who don't feel the need to let others know of what they are doing behind the scenes. Because they know, as we're told, that your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. It's good to look after each other in the church family. It's good also to look after those outside the church family. It's those spontaneous acts of kindness. They're often the most powerful in terms of their witness. Where people are naturally sceptical if you offer them help, they're taken aback by someone, you know, why would you want to help me? And where we show we are not actually expecting anything in return, this is totally unconditional love, they are impressed by that. We should be generous in what we do. Not thought of as somebody who is, is tight with their money. You know, we need to be good stewards, we need to be careful how much we spend on ourselves. But we should be known as generous in spirit towards others, those who don't go around complaining what they don't have or that they are hard done by. The next group mentioned are the tax collectors in verse 12. They also came and asked, what should we do? We talked a little about tax collectors last Sunday evening. They're the ones who abused their expense claims and got away with it. Worse than that, they were also traitors. They collected money for the occupying Roman forces, not top of anybody's popularity list. And when they come to repentance, when they see the error of their ways, being in a, a, a so-called dodgy profession like tax collecting, you may think John would say to them, give it up, go and do an honest profession. But he doesn't. What he simply says is don't collect any more than you are required to do. In other words, the job itself doesn't have to be bad. It's, it's how you behave in that particular job. I think sometimes when people hear, I used to be a banker, they think that I came to faith and then gave up somehow that, that evil profession and went into the ministry. But there's nothing wrong with, with the banking industry. It's how you act as a Christian in that environment, whether you go along with some of the more dubious practices that you will find in any business environment, whether you allow your values to be influenced by the materialistic values of those around you, or whether you do your job to the glory of God. If we become a Christian, 
God doesn't expect us to suddenly give up our job, to give up our, our non-Christian friends. He expects us to stay in a situation, but change the way we behave in that situation. And it's like what we were talking about last Sunday morning. Living an influential life as a Christian often means not doing the things that everybody else is doing, doing things distinctive in our behaviour. It's been interesting, this whole um, MP expense saga. You know, many of them have justified themselves by saying, well, they didn't breach the rules, they didn't breach the law. Um, they were doing what many others were doing. And there's often a sense of when behaviour becomes commonplace, it is, it is acceptable, it's socially acceptable. I think the other interesting thing we've seen in the uproar is that people still have a sort of moral sense of what is right and wrong and feel this has gone beyond what is acceptable. I think caught up in that is a lot of judgmentalism, a lot of pride as well. Um, people assuming that if they were in that position, they wouldn't be doing the same sort of thing. But as Christians, our sense of what is right and wrong is not detected by rules, it's not dictated by what is socially acceptable. It's following the teaching of the Bible. As Jeff prayed earlier from, from Micah, where it says, he, sh- he has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If we did that, then we wouldn't need to worry about what the rules say because we would always be within them. It also means that when we respond humbly to unpleasant situations, our witness will also be very powerful. In the workplace, if we, if we lose a deal, if we have a disappointing pay review, when we experience unfair criticism, where there is economic uncertainty about the future of the, the company, we can respond humbly by demonstrating our trust, our security in Christ. We can respond to these situations in a very different way and people will notice that. Well, the final group of people are the soldiers. These would not have been Roman soldiers, but um, probably the forces of Herod, probably more like policemen. What does John say to them? Verse 14. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Each profession will have its own temptations, its own points of tension. With uh, the tax collecting, it was greed for more money, being tempted to use dishonest and unethical practices to get more. For the soldiers, it would be the fact that they were not paid much and because they felt they deserved more, the temptation to use the power they had, to use the authority they had to to extract money unjustly. That was the situation we came across in Brazil. The police were poorly paid and therefore many were corrupt. They felt they had a right to to earn money on the side somehow, so they did deals with with drug gangs. They pulled people over uh, for the slightest traffic offence in order to try and get a bribe. And the message that John would have for them today, if they became Christians, would not be given up being a policeman, but change the police force from within. Now that could involve, in in any of your professions, incredible sacrifice, because the more godly you become, 
the more clear it becomes that others around you are acting in an ungodly way and they may become resentful. What is clear from John's answers to these three groups is that if we follow Jesus, it will affect all of our lives. We can't make a separation of our church life, from our family life, from our social life, from our work life. All of life is discipleship. How well are we coping with the daily spiritual battles which affect all of us? Whatever we do during the week, whether it is paid employment or another occupation, but just in different ways. How well equipped are we to to deal with the specific challenges in our situation? If we spend the majority of our lives at work, then we need to be equipped to live out a Christian life in that environment. And I'm aware that we as a church and uh, we as pastors do not equip you sufficiently in that area of your lives. And we need to look at ways in which we can do that better. Can I just suggest, though, as we come to an end, a couple of things that you can do yourselves, though, in this area. And the first of those is to recognise that what you are doing, whatever it is, is for the Lord. A verse from Colossians we showed earlier said, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think many Christians do struggle to see that what they do as a job during the week can be for the Lord. You know, it's easy to think that the caring professions are somehow uh, Christian. But what about all these other things? What about being an accountant? What about being a a builder? How how are those things? Can you give glory to the Lord? Interesting enough, when Chris preached last week at at Cornerstone, he asked people to say, what will we be doing on a Monday? And said, how can that be done for the Lord's glory? And somebody did say, well, I'm going to fill out a spreadsheet tomorrow on a computer. How can that be for the Lord's glory? But if you think about every one of these aspects, filling out a spreadsheet, that's an important part of monitoring the financial performance of a company. You know, checking that it's using its resources well, Um, which is what we're called to do as Christians, making sure it's investing its money in the right places, avoiding getting into difficulties. Another one was, well, I'm just going to be changing nappies tomorrow. How can that be for the glory of God? God is a, a gracious father to his children. We know that because if we are his children, and as we show love to our children, in every way, in all the, the dirty, monotonous, tasks that that involves, we're reflecting the love that God has shown to us. The uh, many young people around here at the moment, but them doing their exams, you know, you can quite easily um, think, well, um, how can that be for the glory of God? And actually can become to God's dishonour if, if it becomes so totally focused that that's all we do, that we, we shut off every other aspect of our lives and uh, and we, we don't come to church. We just spend our whole time in revision. As, as Anna was saying, with work, work can become the same, that we suddenly it becomes obsessive and we lose that, that work-life balance. Don't allow any of these aspects to squeeze out God. 
In whatever we do, though, it will involve in some way or another contact with people, whether it's meeting up with other mums, whether it's relationships with colleagues, um, whether it's with clients. In all those relationships, we can demonstrate grace, we can demonstrate love, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit, and God will be glorified. And finally, what we can do is we can pray for and support each other. The reason we come to church, the reason we came this morning, hopefully, is to to worship God, but also to be encouraged by each other as we worship together, to to be fed spiritually, so that we can go out into the world for the rest of the week. We are here to support each other. And when you meet up on a Sunday, before you go home, I wonder if you just ask how people are doing, what sort of week they've got coming up, where they could do with specific prayer. It's difficult to share all of our struggles, all of our challenges in the workplace with everyone here. And uh, that's why smaller groups are such a help, home groups, for example. But even sometimes home groups can be too large. Maybe you just want to find one or two other people that you can get together with regularly and pray for each other, become accountable to each other, share more openly and honestly with the, the struggles that you have in the workplace or in the daily life. If you're in the workplace, seek out other Christians with whom you can meet up and pray. To become a follower of Jesus, we need to give our whole lives to him. And if you've already done that, then be reassured that in whatever situation you'll find yourself this week, it's not because of some, some random accident, but because God has placed you there. Because he knows that you can glorify him there in whatever that is. If you've not yet given your life to God, then if you are still struggling with him, as to how much of your life you really want to give over to him. Let me tell tell you that if you trust in him completely, if you surrender your whole life, you will find the peace that you need. You will find a new meaning and a new direction to your life that will never be the same again. Father God, we thank you for the true freedom we can experience when we give our lives fully and completely to you. And if uh, there are those here this morning who who want to do that, but are just holding back to something, one area of their life which they want to keep for themselves, we pray that by your grace you would enable them to do that and experience your peace, your grace, your love completely in their lives. Lord, for those of us who have already done that and... uh, who are struggling with maybe some sort of meaning and direction to what they are doing in their lives. Lord, we pray that you would show each one of us that we can, whatever we are doing, do it for your glory's sake. That each, each thing that we do has real meaning. It is valued by you. If we do it with a right spirit, with a right heart, if we commit it to you and do it for your glory's sake, we pray that you would enable us to do that. In Jesus' name, Amen.